protect it. Protect it the garment I'm talking about. But it's the same with any garment, isn't it? The same with any garment. It's not designed to be both the same on the inside and the outside. Yeah? On the inside, you see all the stitching that holds it all together. On the inside, you find the material it's made of. You also find the instructions for washing on the inside. Things you should do and things you shouldn't do. So different, the outside from the inside. And I don't know where this is going, really, but I know the Lord gave me this, God, the Holy Spirit gave me this phrase, from the inside to the outside. We might see how this happened. I thought, uh, where are we going? Um, but then I thought about our passages today, how obvious it was that humanity is so different on the inside than it is from the outside. But when you come to Jesus, it's the same on the inside and the outside. You get a uniqueness and integrity that is a display through, the co- through this earth and this cosmic world that's so transparent so transparent that that song we sung just now, my Jesus, my saviour, there is none, none like you. And when I saw the title for this morning's sermon, Jesus Before the Authorities, it's a bit like John several weeks ago, he stood up here and he obviously wasn't enamoured with the title, but he went on from that, and what he drew out of it was so good. I can't remember what it was now, John, but I was trying to look it up. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it anyway. So different on the inside from the outside. And this morning, I just want to look at some things in the life of Jesus. We're going to read Luke first and just see uh, where we're going with this. Um, Luke, because we're going through Luke's gospel, as Steve said earlier, uh, we're in this part where... Jesus' trial and crucifixion, he's, he's before the authorities. Now, we need to look at the, what those authorities were and see, as the light shines on Jesus, and that's what we must come to, Jesus before these authorities, uh, we must see this light shining on Jesus and see what that shows us. When we come to worship, essentially we must be taken up with Jesus. That's the heart of worship. Uh, So so many times we bring meology into it, you know, my feelings, where I've been this week, and there's nothing wrong with that because we need to to change. In actual fact, we want to come from the outside to the inside. There's a change, you know, of all that's been happening around us and to us in the past week must now change because we must focus on Jesus and see him and know how he can help us and he can direct us and point us this way. So Jesus is before several authorities and we'll look at that uh, just a bit later on. But let's read these passages together. We're going on the end of chapter 22 into chapter 23. 
Verse 63 of chapter 22. Now the men were holding Jesus in custody, were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council and they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am? Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Wow. So today, we've seen Jesus standing before authorities. As he's taken to trial and condemned. This is an outrageous scene. Well, we think it is anyway. Not everybody did. We need to look at what those authorities were before we continue to see what we can learn from today's readings and then ask the question, what's really going on here? What's, rea what's really going on here? These accounts by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are at a similar level to the way our contemporary newspapers might record an event like this. However, they all conclude on the true identity of Jesus, the purpose of his coming and his mission, the deep truths of his death and resurrection, 
the fact of his resurrection, his gathering of the church, and final glory, judgment, his coming again, and those sort of things. These, the writers of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all in agreement, and yet they're recording an event, which is a bit like how newspapers would record them. Some, some edition would pick out something different there and something different here, and yet they would all agree in a sense. There'll be a sense that this is actually, there's something more going on here than what is actually going on. We drill down deeper, we get a little, we get below the surface. And so, um, as we begin to look at these authorities, I want just through, through this biblical truth, through this biblical truth, to elevate the glory of Jesus, our Saviour, to enlarge our appreciation of him, to drive down into our spirit to say, he needs our worship, he must have our worship. He's the object of our worship. And God wants to capture the vociferous grandeur of our praise for him, even this morning. Let's not be, oh, let's not be silent. What we have to say is we must shout it out. We must shout it out. If we're not shouting it out totally physically, in our spirit, we must be shouting it out. Because something's birthed in here which is more than just, oh, I love you, Jesus. Something must go beyond that. Something must drill down into our spirit. And it is actually the glory of Jesus that will drive down into our spirit in the end and change us from glory to glory like unto him. We shall know his his gift, his power within us, working in a new way. So the first authority is the, the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council. This is a total agreement. Something you won't find in our parliament today. This is a total agreement of the 70 notorious people of the day. So that would be a religious agreement. And somewhat political too. And the voice of the Sanhedrin and the people stirred up by this Jewish ruling council is phrased in these words, which are verses which uh, they said, let his blood be upon our people. Now, if you consider that, it's quite a serious thing. They're saying, we as a nation, we as a people have agreed today that we're responsible for his death. And we ain't worried about it. It's right. We're the godly people. We've taken counsel together and we decide that this man's worthy of death. So that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. The other thing that they said was, we won't have this man to reign over us. <laughs> we don't like your kingdom, Jesus. It's instigating the wrong things and we just don't want you, we, want, we just want help in get rid of this Roman oppression. We want help just to uh, fight these people and get back on the status you've said we are. We will not have this man to reign over us. His blood and his kingdom. Two values of the gospel which we can't walk by in life. 
we can, as Christians, as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can turn from the inside to the out and we can say, Lord, let your blood be over us and upon us because the power of your blood stands for eternity. Just like the early history of the Jewish people, uh, they were told to take the blood of the lamb, to put it on the side posts and the lintel of the houses as protection from the angel of death that went across. And if we take the whole of the biblical story, we say and conclude there is power in the blood of Jesus because it comes from a sacrifice well and perfectly made for the sin of the world. His blood. And very often I pray the blood over my family. Protect my kids' marriages. Protect the children as they grow up, morally and spiritually. And I claim the blood of Jesus. And if we look to Revelation and we look to the testimony of the people that overcame different situations, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Now we may not fully understand that statement and the power, but there's a cosmic cause here in that Jesus has died for and dealt with the sin of the world. He's, he's removed it from God's vista, as it were. And he's transferred it to himself. So that's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Then there's the priesthood within that Jewish ruling council. We find the authority of the priesthood. God gave the order of a specific right of access to himself and relationship with himself initially to these people he chose to work with. And when Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me, he was seemingly wiping out all that order. All the sacrificial approach to God was given to the Jewish people. They blew it, but it was the way that they could, God said that they could approach God. It was the way that they could find relationship with God. It's through those sacrifices and those orders that God gave them. But when Jesus came and he said, no man comes to the Father except by me, that would cut right across all their calling that God ever put upon them. He's putting himself in the place of a priest on that moment, saying, we have access to God only through me. And that's what stands today. If we come to God, we want to come to him, we want to know his power and his goodness. We come through Jesus, our great high priest. Amazing, wonderful. In Hebrews, we read this about the priesthood. No man takes this honor to himself under the Jewish order. And yet at that moment when Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me, He's taking on himself, or he's declaring to the world in actual fact that he's the way to the Father. No wonder we sing about the gospel. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. That's that authority. Then there's the Roman authority. Jesus stands before the Roman authority in the form of Pilate and Herod. And um, <coughs> we saw him before Pilate. Pilate, interestingly, said on 
one or two occasions, I find no guilt in this man. I find no fault in him. And I find nothing under Roman law which can put this man to death. But he could only determine that under Roman law. He couldn't be seeing with the eye of God. He couldn't see the inside and the outside truly as it was. He couldn't see that. Only God could see that. And God accepted Jesus. So there's the Roman authority, Pilate and Herod. And um, I, I read this week, um, um, they have, in the archives, they have a letter that Pilate wrote to Herod when, Jesus, when he sent Jesus to Herod. That's quite amazing, really. You see a different side of Pilate, but I won't go into that. Take us off track. So does the Roman authority. So Jesus is before the Roman authority. The next authority you have is the cosmic realm, the power of darkness. That's an authority we don't fully understand, but it's a controlling authority. It's one which was controlling the crowd at the time, controlling the crowd through the leaders. It's the one that was taking over above what people could see and understand what was going on. And even now, we are, we, we, we are people who don't really fully understand what God is doing and what's going on underneath what we read. But the power of darkness. And Jesus highlighted this in verse 53 of chapter 20. He said, but this is your hour, said Jesus, when darkness reigns. So he's saying, what he's saying out in his mouth, okay, demonic and satanic forces, here's your opportunity Go for it. No. Jesus was standing before this authority, the power of darkness. In Psalm 22, we read this almost strange phrase, the strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Bulls and Bashan were the best you could get. They were well-fed, they were fattened, but they came from the wrong place. So you can see the undermining thing that's going on here. The whole identity of Jesus is under threat, and his power is under threat as the cosmic powers of darkness come upon him. So you see that the power of darkness is an authority. Is that what he said about Judas when Steve brought that message? Satan entered him. It took over his life and became an authority over him. But this authority has nothing against Jesus. In Psalm 22, it also refers to the lion. And Jesus himself said, Satan is like a lion that roars around. So he didn't only see sort of demonic forces around him, but he saw the one that was driving those forces. That authority was at work trying to Bring cosmic rejection of Jesus totally and completely. He spoke about the dogs. Well, that would the people be the non-Jews around him. And as he was standing before trial, he Jesus prophetically in Psalm 22, it's 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 sort of reading it out and tell us what this experience was like for Jesus as he 
stood before man and he stood before and went to the cross just a bit later. Then we see humanity in general. That's another authority. The writer of the Hebrews says that humanity is in itself an authority of the highest order in God's creation as everything is put under his feet. And the writer then says in the Hebrews, we don't actually see that yet, but we see Jesus. So he takes the focus off there, that man in his fallen state, to see Jesus. And we see Jesus. But mankind, humanity, if you like, is an authority. How has it become an authority? Well, within justice and injustice is the cry of humanity today, isn't it? Everyone seems to want what's right. Everyone seems to want what's right. But we want it as the way we see it. We want it as the way we want to do it. That's, that's our way. And we call that relativism. Whatever suits me goes. That's the authority of humanity, justice and injustice. Everyone seems to want what is right, but in their own eyes, in the way that they see it, and one man on his own just doesn't seem to fit that deeper cry of relevant justice. Mankind is trying to reconcile God to its private thinking, not its godly thinking. That's an authority that is reigning in our society today. Not what God wants, but what I want. And then lastly, although it may not be conclusively, the throne of heaven, the greatest authority which was on display in this time. We find Jesus before the throne of heaven. In Acts 17, 30, 31, Peter's saying, he has given assurance of the authority of heaven upon Jesus to all by raising him from the dead. Referring back to the priesthood of the Old Testament under the Jewish order, when the, great, when the high priest used to go into the Holy of Holies once a year, there is a sort of a legend that says they used to tie a bit of rope on his ankle so that if he died, they could not go in there and be killed themselves, but pull him out without going in. That was sort of legend. I'm not saying that's extra biblical. I'm not sure that it's true. But the idea behind it is that if that high priest didn't do his service in the exact way that God said it should be done, that was a holy place, he would die in the presence of God. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> Yet Jesus, he died, came out alive. That's the assurance, that's the conclusion, that before this authority of heaven, Jesus rose from the dead. The high priest that did things wrong went in alive and came out. Well, he didn't come out dead, but he, he was dead. He died inside. Jesus died and then came out alive. The resurrection of that is the assurance that the throne of heaven has seen Jesus and knows that, yeah, everything's okay. He's the man. He's the man of glory. You say, well, why have you gone over all these authorities? Because I want to highlight a verse 
just explain that a little and then go on to another thing. When I said earlier, what's really going on here? What's really going on? In John 14, verse 30, Jesus said, For the ruler, the prince of this world, is coming upon me, and he has nothing in me. The prince of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. So when you hear all these accusations about Jesus, who he might have married, who he might have had sex with, and what he might have been a homosexual, all those awful things which we think are awful, when you think of all those things leveled against him, Jesus said, the prince of this world comes. He's continually coming, but he has nothing in me. That can't we say of us, because Jesus is unique, and he stands out as the glorified man the glorified man so wonderful it is let these things about jesus elevate him in our worship and his praise so in no way was jesus in the wrong place misplaced doing what he is not meant to be doing even though peter thought that he was the prince of the power of the air which is the spirit working in the sons of disobedience not Jesus, though. Not Jesus. We have to take on the fact that Satan, that claim, the power of darkness, had no claim upon, no authority had no claim upon Jesus to bring him to this place. So what was really happening? So Jesus could say, Satan has no authority over me to make or coerce me to do anything other than what God wants. And if we level that up against our lives, we do find a coercion from Satan, don't we? Do this and you'll feel better. Do this and you know, don't worry about that. You know, so it coercing us away from the path of righteousness, if you like. But Jesus said, he has no authority over me to make or coerce me to do anything other than what God wants. He can't expose a single thought, act, attitude, misdemeanor, where he can raise a guilt trip and thus undermine my resolve to do his will. Satan's tried deceit. He's tried cunning. He's tried confrontation. He's tried physical harm. He's tried mind challenges. He's tried reasonings. He's twisted the truth. He's quoted the truth out of context, and he has nothing in me. Our perfect, sinless Lord Jesus. The other thing that was going on here, what's really going on here, which I take from another verse which is quoted when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. This is sort of the application for this morning. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So with all Jesus standing before those stories, we need to ask, and we should ask, and we see what God was doing then. God was reconciling the world unto himself. I'm going to read it. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. 
And we need to do that too. We need to see a Jesus beyond just the human man. We regard him not so long as therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And, and this is the application, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just quickly, I just want to raise some things out of that. As a church, and we tonight would be praying on Zoom for a bit for our Vision 24, where we're going. As a church, we must be calling others to be reconciled to God not just becoming more like Jesus, which is good and right, and our character's development. It's actually being reconciled to God. That's the message of the gospel, and we mustn't give up on that. We must be declarers of the truest truth, if you like, of the gospel. But sin has separated us from God. And the only way that we can come back to God is through his wonderful son, who stands in between. One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No man comes to the Father but by me. Being reconciled is an important thing. The call in those words was to be reconciled to God. If you don't feel or know that you are reconciled to God this morning, anybody here in this room, there's an opportunity that we can be this morning, being reconciled to God. The first thing I want to bring out of this too, the message of reconciliation. So it flows out from here because Paul reckoned that God has given us, them, the apostles, the ministry of reconciliation. That is also passed on to the church and individuals in the church. The message of reconciliation is quite an important thing. The first trick of the first trick of the devil was to actually get between God and man boom, and cut him off from God. The other trick is actually to divide the church and separate one half from another. And that's hostility between the two. The message, the message of reconciliation, but it doesn't only work in the gospel of man being reconciled to God, it's of man being reconciled to each other. And there's just many streams of this in our society and globally where the divided church has been robbed of its power. I'm not saying we all believe the same thing, but there's a sense here that flesh and flesh needs to be reconciled. The next thing I want to say is, and this is built out in the scripture, we need to be reconciled with ourselves. There's a story about a lady in the touch the hem, 
I think it's the one, it's touched the hem of his garment. And it talks about, it talks about the friction or the conflict that was going on between her, uh, her physical situation and needing the healing. We read that she spent so much money on the doctors, it had been sort of 38 odd years that she'd been on this journey of, of seeking healing. And, and the other thing that we said about it is no one helped her. In a sense, and because of that physical situation, she was troubled in her spirit. And that happens. Physical demands and health reflects on our spiritual health sometimes. And what we're saying is conflict between the two. And that's one of the things we go through in life, the conflict between the two. But in finding Jesus and touching the hem of his garment, she became a woman who was not only healed, but set at peace. And not now afraid to come near to God, if you like, which she was before. There was that reconciling that was going on. And sometimes within ourselves. And I just say to you this morning, if you're not settled in your spirit, some way or another, there's a conflict going on some way it, within yourself. Let God sort it out with his peace. And come and receive the Holy Spirit. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit because he's the one that can sort that reconciliation out and give you Jesus' peace. There's no conflict. If you're living with conflict within yourself and your spirit, could be all manner of things. Jesus will give you his peace. There's conflict which may arise in the church, within our community. And I'm saying this because we... We're a lovely church, we enjoy one another, but so easily, so easily, some little thing could get into the congregation and bring it down and destroy it. And we need to know in, in the future, don't see it now, but you know something that's troubling you in your spirit, just say, talk to someone about it. Get it reconciled before it comes out in the open. But if it does come out, there needs to be reconciliation Paul said this is the ministry of reconciliation it's getting rid of those things that come between us the next thing is marriage don't let it happen but if it does happen pursue reconciliation protect the relationship, because that's God's way. So this morning, we have the opportunity not only of looking to Jesus, seeing how wonderful he is, but also the opportunity of what he can do, the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us to put things right Get rid of those things that are between so that peace may last and peace may dwell. The story in the Bible about Jacob and Esau, Steve spoke about it years ago now, I think it was, about the conflict between Jacob and Esau. You know how the birthright was stolen and that couldn't be forgiven. And yet the, the time came when they had to meet up. Fear and all that was between the relationship. And sometimes that can happen in relationships between us. But God mercifully brought the two brothers back together in peace 
and harmony. As we seek to live on and work out, let's know that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation as he birthed with humanity at the cross. Father, we just praise and thank you for the amazing and wonderful work that Jesus has done for us. Lord, he stood before all these authorities. Lord, he's gone through the the hellish experience of all those demonic forces against him. He took on himself that which was flesh and blood, not only just the wonder of it, but the depth of it, the fallenness of it, the brokenness of it, as he stood before those authorities. And we see, Father, a man who on the inside and the outside became that frustrated that divided person under which a curse was, and yet he was taking that for us. So we thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. We worship you, we welcome you, we want to praise your name.